Welcome to the Brian Thomas Crop Podcast. My name is Brian Thomas Crop, and I believe that there is a tremendous power for good in stories, and so I write them, and I enjoy sharing them with you. If you're new to this podcast, then how this works is I read a chapter from one of the books that I have written, and then go into a little bit about maybe an Easter egg or two that uh, I hid in that uh, for a very small audience. Uh, But then also maybe how that chapter or this story got written. Uh, Oftentimes writers hear, you know, how did you come up with your ideas? And I still don't really know, uh, but I can tell you how maybe that chapter came to be or or what's uh, running behind there. So today we are starting a brand new uh, story. This is uh, the first novel that I wrote called Showdown in the Yukon. And It has some specific issues that have happened over the years in getting this one developed, which I will talk about on the other side of chapter one. I'm glad that you are a part of this particular episode as we're launching this book. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Uh, But first, before we get into chapter one, I want to let you know a little message from this week's sponsors. I also wanted to let you know that Sabrina Cubbins and Mr. Alexander's Pottery Palace is now out in audiobook form. If you listen to the chapters as they came out on this podcast, but would like them all without all of my commentary and all that stuff, uh, then you can just swing over to my author page on Amazon or check them out at audible.com and you can get your very own copy of the audiobook version of Sabrina Cubbins and Mr. Alexander's Pottery Palace. Uh, there's an audiobook too there, uh, Fish Tales. You can grab that too. Uh, if nothing else, you can let other people know if they are more of uh, audiobook people that it's there. You can also leave a review over there on Amazon or Audible as well. That would be much appreciated too. Well, enough of me talking about that. Now on to this week's chapter. Chapter 1 It had been a long time since anyone had found even the glint of gold in Gooden Gulch, but that had not stopped people from hooking horses to wagons and trying their luck. The town sprang up around the hubbub of gold found up near San Francisco back in 1849, but as everyone knows, the claims for that gold were seized up quickly. It was little towns like Gooden Gulch that offered some sparkle of hope to those with money in their eyes, putting all their hopes on making it rich in California. Rumors sprang up of gold flecks found around creek beds, nothing to ensure wealth, but flecks might lead to veins. So, if a vein hid nearby, someone was bound to locate it. Why not you? Why not me? Why not them? The rumors swirled and overlapped enough over the years to keep people coming through steadily to see if they might be the chosen individual to strike it rich. Monterey Jack Danvers was one of the consequences of such broken hopes. His parents drove all the way out from St. Louis in the hopes of a brand new life of Californian prosperity and ease. However, his mother passed away bringing Monterey into the world, and his father, ill-equipped for mothering and not much better at fathering, left the boy to grow up however Monterey saw fit. By the time the boy was seven, he was very worldly wise and rarely saw his prospecting father. So when the news came that his dad had met his end falling off the side of a mountain, 
Monterey was rather indifferent about becoming an orphan. Over the years, he became an expert at parting naive fools from their money. In particular, he was a skilled pickpocket and had run small-time schemes throughout Central California. Within 10 seconds of seeing a man, he could evaluate how much money he carried, where he had it, and what would distract him while being robbed. You see, that's the thing with pickpocketing. The good ones play on the victim's confidence that they are safe and secure in broad daylight. Of course, you would never know how wrong you were until it was too late. Well, after one close scrape with the law too many, Monterey decided it was better for him to get out of the petty theft game altogether and try to make it through life as a stand-up citizen. He knew it would only be a matter of time before his life ended early, by a bullet or a noose. He reached this conclusion while hiding out in Gooden Gulch after escaping Sacramento with his life. Monterey, by now the ripe old age of 12, asked the owner of the Hayes House Inn for a job. Asked might be too generous a word for it. The reality was Monterey just started washing dishes in the kitchen one day and never left. It was a full three months before the owner, Paps Montgomery, realized he had an employee. Another five years had passed when, on the morning that begins our story, a dandy from who knows where came jangling into the lobby. Monterey stopped his regular cleaning and tidying, took one look at the stranger, and smiled. The dandy's boots had yet to be broken in, his pants had no repairs, and his hat was as stiff as a board. He wore a black leather vest with polished buttons, the chain of a watch dangled between its pockets. The man wore no gun that Monterey could see at first glance, but that did not mean much in these parts. Monterey ran through at least ten ways he could lift the man's wallet, watch, and whatever else he could find before chuckling to himself and getting back to his duties. "'Excuse me, son,' the man said approaching Monterey. I understand there's a game here, and I would like to get in on that action. Monterey set down his small stack of plates and looked at the face of the stranger. The man was correct. Paps had a regular poker game operating in the back corner of the dining room. It had been going on for so long, and the same money had changed hands so often that no one knew who was winning anymore. From time to time, folks looking for even faster money than panning and mining would get involved in this game. Paps gave Monterey the freedom to invite people to play if he thought there wouldn't be too much of a threat to the overall mood. After giving the man a polite smile, Monterey thought Paps and the boys would enjoy taking this man for all he was worth. So, he said to the stranger, Right this way. There's a $50 buy-in and you can jump in in the next hand. The man reached inside his jacket pocket and pulled out a leather wallet and waved it confidently at Monterey. Not a problem. I'm just in town for the day and thought I might get some spending money for when I make it to Fresno. When the man reached in fetching his wallet, Monterey saw the small pistol strapped just under his left arm and the hint of a money belt bulging under his vest. Monterey shook his head. The man left himself wide open to Monterey's talents. It would have been easy enough to lift the gun and money belt before he ever hit the poker table, but Monterey promised Paps not to pick pockets unless specifically asked to do so. The fact the man carried a concealed gun on him did not concern Monterey. Even if the man was stupid enough to draw the weapon, it was doubtful it would get fired. Monterey would see to that. Monterey introduced the man to Paps and the others. Paps did not look up. Instead, he tapped the tabletop with his forefinger and said, 50. The man reached inside again, but this time pulled out the pistol instead of his wallet and aimed it at Paps' head. I believe you are the one who owes me, he said. When Paps finally looked up, he set his cards face down on the table. The man continued, 
My employer, a gentleman by the name of Russell Witt, has sent me here to collect the debt you owe him, and I mean to get it one way or another. So while we can do this the hard way, I suggest you hand over the money now so we can forget this whole ugly business. If nothing else, Paps was quick on his feet. The trouble was his feet often rushed him into more trouble. I don't have it, he said as helplessly as he could. Monterey knew the look and the tone. On one level, Paps was not lying. He likely did not have the man's money. Paps was not one to let money sit in his pocket for too long. Monterey also knew the phrase, I don't have it, was code, and by using this secret phrase, Paps meant he would appreciate assistance from his pickpocket kitchen helper in dealing with this stranger. Paps held his hands up and said, In fact, I'm several dollars in the holes of these fine gentlemen. Might I have an extension from Mr. Witt to repay? I'm not here to negotiate, the stranger said. I'm here to collect. I can collect your cash, or I can collect your blood. Or, Monterey jumped in, you could double your employer's winnings, Monterey smiled as he thought a fancy butler might. The stranger turned his head to Monterey while keeping his pistol trained on Paps. Pardon? he asked. The two of you play one hand of poker. I'm not here to gamble, the man said. Smart man, Paps offered, and you should never start. Paps, please, Monterey said. Paps had a habit of saying too much in sensitive negotiations like this. Monterey put his hand up to Paps, then continuing with the stranger, he said, One hand of poker, winner takes all. All of what? The man squinted his eyes at Monterey. This in, Paps said and shot a smiling glance at Monterey. He was not helping. Monterey winked at him to keep quiet. And what do I get? Paps asked, playing along. How about getting to live? The man growled. No, no. I win. I want something for my trouble. You come barging into my establishment and waving a gun in my face. Paps pointed at the stranger's belly. Your watch. My in for your pocket watch. The stranger stood resolute and unconvinced. Why do I get the impression you all are trying to swindle me? Nothing could be further from the truth, Paps said. Monterey pulled out a chair for the stranger. The stranger paused. Monterey leaned into the stranger's ear and whispered, The old man is always shooting his mouth off. I've been trying to get away from him for months. Take me with you when you win this hand. The stranger stared at Monterey. Then he must have found enough honesty in Monterey to sit down at the table, placing his pistol in front of him. Okay, he said. One hand. Paps grimaced as the cards landed on the table, one by one, and the house rules were explained. Each player evaluated the strength of their cards, exchanged weak ones for the hopes of better ones, and someone called the hands. The stranger laid his cards down first. It was a pair of jacks and a pair of nines. Paps looked at his hand and smiled. He laid down a full house. Looks like Mr. Witt is out some money. Too bad, Paps said. You can hand me over that watch now. The stranger moved to grab his pistol, but it was not there. Where's my gun? He protested. Where's your gun? Paps pointed. Where's your watch? The stranger looked down at his empty vest and knew. His anger stood him up, and he looked like he was going to throw something or someone through a wall. Paps stood and put his hands in his pockets. Why don't you go back to Mr. Witt and tell him that we are now even? If he wants to discuss our business further, he should come here himself and talk to me like a man. With every eye on him, the stranger evaluated his odds of winning a fight. 
straightened his coat, and strode out the front door. Monterey's stomach was balled up. He reached in his pocket and pulled out the pistol and the watch and laid them on the table. Monterey, Pap said with a smile, what would I do if you weren't here to bail me out of my mistakes? And went right back to his poker playing. With all of the danger Monterey had seen in his short life, he was sure one of these days Paps was going to go too far and Monterey would not be there to help him. On one hand, he wanted to save Paps from himself. On the other, he wanted to get as far away as possible. Some place no one knew his past, and he could go straight for real. Knowing this was a fantasy born of hopelessness, Monterey picked up the stack of plates and continued getting the dining room ready for the evening meal. So that was chapter one of Showdown in the Yukon. And this is an idea that has been swirling around in my mind for years, very long time. In fact, a very early version of when I was getting into writing, I wrote a blog post and uh, the thought was, if I just can write a blog post a, a week, then maybe over the course of time, I will actually have finished this story that I've probably started 10 times uh, before I got it done. And uh, if you were a part of that crowd, which might be like two people, uh, the title of the story was Monterey Jack and the Pearl from Outer Space. And if you're regular with this podcast, you know that I don't know how to title things. And that is clearly apparent from that title. And it starts roughly the same as Showdown in the Yukon, but it ends wildly different. And I think, of course, uh, the time of that, I didn't really have a plan. I didn't have an outline. I hadn't figured out how to do that with my stories and really didn't know how to finish uh, the story at all. So it became kind of a swirling mess of storylines and it wasn't that good and I needed some help. So I just kind of ended it. Um, and then found uh, some help through a story outlining editing method called uh, StoryGrid. Uh, if you really want to take a deeper dive on that, StoryGrid has a podcast, and I would go back to episode one of that, which is it's a lot of episodes, but I think it would be very helpful for you if you're trying to figure out how to actually get started on writing your own story in a way that you haven't wasted a lot of effort and ended up in the middle of a desert somewhere with your with your ideas. Um, so that's what I did and um, was able to re-outline and ran into another uh, very helpful thing of, um, for those of you who have already read the print copy of Showdown and have said, hmm, this story sounds familiar. I think uh, in a future chapter, I'll let the cat out of the bag as to what that is. But I did run into, um, an idea of, which is similar to my wife's a jazz musician in as far as training goes, she's not currently a jazz musician, but that's what she started to do in school. And one of the lessons that if you're learning how to do jazz solos, they train you in is uh, listen to the greats, steal some of their licks, and then uh, get those under your fingers. And then over the course of time, you can assemble and put together different licks and you have a solo. And then eventually, as you practice, you develop your own muscles and know how to do your own solos. 
a similar thing happened with this story of find a plot that already works, you know it works and people like it, and then do a variation on that plot and start to learn the skills of how do you actually tell a story, particularly a novel, because it takes a long time and there are a lot of moving parts. Find something that works and then kind of variant off of that. And so that's what I did. It was super helpful. I'm glad I did it. Um, and in, again, in a future chapter, I'll let you know, be it, I think for those of you who know, there's a chapter in this story that is obvious from another plot. So we'll get to that down the road. But um, I was very glad to finally get to the end of a story that seemed to work and was enjoyable. Read it for the kids. They liked it. All those things. Uh, I've been promising for weeks now on the podcast that there would be Easter eggs. And a lot of uh, the early work that I, I did wasn't all that personal. There was, They had personal aspects to them, but I wasn't able to infuse a lot of um, me into the story, so to speak. And this is a story where I put a lot of different aspects of me or my, my history or people I know and that kind of stuff into the story. And so starting off with this, Monterey Jack starts off in a place called Gooding Gulch, which doesn't exist, completely made it up, but it was a way to get the maiden name of my mom's mom into the story. Uh, her name was Ruth Gooden and then married a guy named Jack Brown. That is not uh, where Jack comes from. Monterey Jack's really bad pun name was, I think, um, I'm from Fort Worth and there was a, a place where the Texas Rangers play not far from me. And uh, there's a spot where you anybody can park to watch the baseball game. And it had a sign on there called General Parking. And I thought, oh, General Parking, that'd be a great name for some military character. What other names are like that? And um, realized that Monterey Jack is an, it's a cheese, obviously, but that's where that came from. I just thought, hey, that's a good name for somebody, like a rough and tumble dude named Monterey Jack. And so it kind of came from there. Um, again, not good at naming things, but there you go. So uh, that is chapter one. I realize not a whole lot of action takes place in this chapter, just setting up uh, who Monterey is and where he starts so that uh, he can go on his adventure here in just a few more chapters. So uh, I'm glad that you were part of this episode. I would love to know your thoughts on the book or the podcast. You obviously can go to Amazon and leave all the reviews over there if you've uh, read the book and uh, want to leave a review over there. But you can also go to wherever you're listening to this podcast on that platform and leave a rating or review. That helps people know kind of what they're getting into with the uh, podcast. And also... I'd like to know your thoughts. So you can do that there. You can also email me. If you go to uh, the website, my website, which is in the show notes for this episode and get on my uh, reader list, then uh, I will send you a free PDF of one of my very early uh, stories that I wrote. I think you'll like it. It was featured back in episode one, but then you get to uh, get on all the inside scoop on all things Brian Thomas Crop book related. So uh, if you would like to do that, you check that out. Otherwise, I hope you have a great week and I will uh, talk to you in the next episode.